0: Right, right. So when we say abrasive media blasting to our customers, um, they immediately think of sandblasting, which is not a medium that we use. Um, Why do you think that sandblasting is kind of like the default for people? Um, Was it the original blast medium?
1: Sure, and and yes, it was the original blast media. Um unfortunately the terminology associated with with it haven't really changed, although some of the practices and and products used have, have have changed drastically. You know, back in the day um there wasn't quite the health concerns or the awareness of the health concerns associated with using silica sand as an abrasive. And as things have progressed and evolved, we've we've kind of put more of a focus on some of those things and put more controls in place uh, to help protect the operator and then the people around in the in the blast environment and uh yeah, unfortunately, we're we're trying to help educate customers, and you hear the term media blasting uh, used quite often, and that's that's a fairly broad term as well. Obviously, there's a lot of different abrasives, but it's some of those contacts and some of those people. Um, you know, when you say media blasting, they kind of look at you a little strange, and then when you say sandblasting, they say, "Oh yeah, we do tons of that." It's like, oh. mm-hmm. so it's just kind of a just kind of a culture change. Um, we're just trying to help. It'd be nice to kind of help educate some customers to. to to use a different term and and certainly get rid of that sand as as part of the title.
0: Sure. So is sand uh, no longer supplied?
1: Well, no, it's it's really not. I mean, there's there's outside regulations or agencies that sort of are trying to enforce and get rid of silica sand being used. Uh, obviously, Canfield and Joseph, we we sell zero silica sand for the use in abrasive blasting, um, just because the health concerns and the the issues with the free silica. Um, but, you know, OSHA has done a done a great job of, of stepping in and, and, and putting in some guidelines in place to kind of help make that uh, or make make it harder to use that as a, a media or abrasive. And um, a, lot, a lot of things have changed the industry as a result of them getting involved <laughs> in putting different checks and balances in place.
0: I was going to ask who kind of regulates that. So, and it sounds like it's OSHA, then.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do play a big part of that. Um, You know, they've they've created the uh, the PEL or the permissible exposure limit, and that you know that goes back to the early seventies where they put in a guideline of how much exposure an operator or the personnel can have during a, a set amount period of time, and. From 1971 now until most recently, I believe it was back in in 2018, the guidelines have changed specific to the blasting or the general industry, and and that PEL or permissible exposure limit has has dropped considerably. So the amount of silica that a a blaster or operator could be exposed to has, has been cut down.
0: Interesting. So has PPE evolved quite a bit then um, in your time in the industry?
1: Well, you know, I've, I've been doing this for about eight years. I think we've seen maybe the, the technology with the PPE is, has changed. It's, it's probably getting a little bit more operator friendly. It's getting lighter, maybe more ergonomically. um comfortable to wear, you know, with the the addition of the climate tubes that can now heat and cool the supplied air coming into the helmet. But I think some of the education and the awareness of what is available from a PPE side is, is, is probably becoming a little bit more known. And the customers are aware of the, the monitoring that they need to be doing for, you know, not only for the silica, but also for possibly like carbon monoxide and different things that could be in their supplied air. So it's... There's a lot of good tools and resources out there that, that can be used. And I mean, that's part of our job is to help educate the the customers or the end users of what's available to them. So that way they can be as safe as possible.
0: I imagine the temperature control was a bit of a game changer for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. You know, in, in the Midwest here, we could see, you know, very, very cold cold temperatures in the summer we can have the 100 degree days so you know to be able to take that incoming air and 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 cool it by 30 40 50 degrees can Mm -hmm. can certainly help that operator it creates a a lot more user-friendly environment for them and and the, the the more comfortable we can keep that operator hopefully the safer they can operate and the the more efficient they can can be as well
2: Yeah. And the PPE is extremely important. And when I first started, I didn't realize, like I knew that you got to have a blast helmet on mainly to keep the blast media away from your face and things. But then, you know, when I talked to Greg and started learning about that, you know, obviously we're supplying air to the helmet, then we have to consider, well, like, where is that air coming from? Well, it's coming from our air compressor. So we got to make sure that that air is actually good enough to breathe. We need to put it through the right filters and have the right monitoring equipment. And there's a lot of different companies out there that that have uh, monitoring equipment and filters so you can kind of have your choice to pick whatever you want but learning about all the different ones that are out there and certain ones do certain things differently and trying to understand that to make sure that you're actually giving good quality air to the operator themselves is really important. And I think sometimes that's probably like the the last thing that gets remembered. Maybe not when you're like us. We have a very specific facility. We have a blast room. We're like hooking up to the same stuff every day. But Greg, when when there's people blasting out on site and things like that, how does the since I don't we don't really have experience with that. I would assume it's more challenging to get everything hooked up the right way every day or when you're moving from job to job is...
1: Oh, I'd agree a hundred percent with you, Jason. You know, it's when you're on the job site, everything's got to be mobile. It's taken apart and put together all the time. And each job site specific that the layout is is totally different or can vary from one day to the next. You know, one day the compressor might be right next to where you're going to be blasting and everything's kind of condensed together. And sometimes a compressor might be three or 400 feet away and you have to run a a great deal of air supply line before you get to the you know the blast pot or the 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 filters that are going to be supplying both both blast air and respirable air for the operator so it's it it is very important like you said the when you're in your shop and you're blasting in the same environment all the time it, it does make it a little bit easier but but it is easy to kind of take it for granted and not think about it a lot of times that compressor even in a blast shop is not right next to the blast room so it's always important to go all, all the way back to that compressor and do a good inspection and a, and a check on everything from that compressor all the way to the end just to make sure that we're we're giving ourselves the the freshest and the the, the best quality of air to the operator and that way we're not introducing any contaminants or or anything that could be harmful to
2: them. Yeah, and then one thing that I learned from you that I, like we would have air coming into like the CPF filter and that might be a certain brand and then we had an air hose coming out of that it could be another brand and then the the cool air tube or the heat air tube was another brand and the blast helmet was another brand and I thought, you know, hey, these all, all these things were good individually. We like certain ones over others for each part, but then you'd help me realize that that's really not the way you're supposed to do it it's supposed to be all the same brand that's correct
1: yeah, that, that is correct. Yep, there's there's other agencies like NIOSH that get involved in that. And the main thing is is just the to make sure that every one of those components that you just described um, connect properly and, and, and work to create the results you're trying to achieve. They, the phrase that we always say is is nose to hose all the way from the operator's blast helmet all the way to where it connects to the inline filter, that CPF filter you mentioned. You need to maintain one brand. Um, and that, like I said, is just to make sure that everything goes together properly and achieves the results we're looking for. And that way they all, they're they all compatible together.
0: That's so interesting. Um, you know, yeah, that's so interesting. This is a complete aside, but I just spent two weeks at Kaiser, like on site because I normally work remotely. And we got a lot of calls asking whether we had a mobile blasting unit. And it wasn't until I was there that I realized how much of a demand there is for that. Do you see a lot of that in your territory or is it primarily stationary shops like ours?
1: Oh yeah, we, we we see it all. I mean, we're helping Canfield and Joseph. We support customers in small fabrication shops, you know, guys that might just have a small little hand cabinet. Um, and they're just doing small touch up work to the other end of the spectrum on our surface preparation side of our business could be guys doing bridges and water towers and, and large above ground storage tanks. So we, we work with small customers Then we work with some of the biggest contractors in the country. And, uh, to get back to your point about the, the mobile units it's it has really really grown in popularity over the last several years um a lot a lot of guys there's 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 some companies out there that are introducing some some new styles or different types of equipment that are more geared towards a almost like a franchise you could you could buy this trailer and it's got really all the components you would need to to run or to be able to operate a blast business from and um, that's it's really by those guys getting involved in the business, it's it's created a lot of awareness towards blasting and uh, and, and the mobile side of it is, is is certainly where that attention is drawn towards.
0: It must be useful for infrastructure. I mean, you mentioned bridges and water towers and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it really is. And a lot of these mobile rigs, I mean, they can, you know, say there's graffiti on the side of a building or something like that. They could they can really just bring all the equipment right down to it off of a city street or in a driveway and 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 take care of a project for a customer. So it really can create a pretty versatile system.
0: Wow. So uh, my understanding of the blasting process is fairly rudimentary. Uh, Jace does a great job of educating, but I've never actually, you know, done it myself. And I think until you're in the booth, you don't really understand what it is or how it works. So um, this is a basic, basic question. Um, Do I understand correctly that abrasive media blasting can be performed wet or dry? And what are the differences and advantages of each?
1: Yes. So you you certainly can blast wet or dry. Um, You know, dry is the the process when people think of sandblasting that's that's probably the most commonly thought of process though people have been wet blasting for for a very long time um you know in the past guys were Blasting wet by using uh, like a water ring or a wet injection nozzle that would introduce water to the air and abrasive stream at the nozzle, and it sort of helps encapsulate that blast environment where the 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 blast media comes in contact with the substrate or the surface, and sort of it works as a containment to help keep that dust down. But over the past few years, there's been a lot of different equipment manufacturers have introduced some new equipment and some different technology to the market that. Um, has really been very popular making kind of the wet blasting side really grow in popularity. Um, and, and that's mainly due to some of those mobile rigs I was talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. but like the benefits of one over another, um, Uh, You know, in terms of production rates and things like that, they're both very similar. I mean, I know there's a lot of companies out there that will preach that that wet blasting is more efficient and you're, you can blast faster, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're still using compressed air and an abrasive, um, you're really doing pretty much the same thing minus the water. Now, the water will add some some weight and some density to that that abrasive uh, media. And I guess I guess it could help cut it a little bit faster because it's going to be hitting a little bit harder since it's heavier. But it's it's Hmm. not going to be a dramatic difference in productivity.
0: Does it have does it have any impact on whether you're able to reuse it?
1: It can, um, you know, most guys that are using wet systems are using a more friable or a one pass abrasive that, um, once it hits the surface, it pretty much breaks or fractures to the point where it's not reclaimed, um, but that's a, that's a great question, because in order to reclaim that material, you'd have to put it, you'd have to collect it, you'd have to screen it, so that way you could remove all of the surface debris or contamination from the ground um, off of that media, and then it would have to be dried to be, to be able to put it back into a blast vessel or a blast pot. So it would be very difficult to do that, although I've, I've, I've heard of some people doing it. I just think that it would be very cumbersome or laborsome in order to do that.
0: And would probably take up some space, I imagine.
1: You know, with our climate here in the Midwest, for four or five months out of the year where we're at or below freezing, um, right. you know, a, wet, a wet only system uh, is very difficult to run when it's zero degrees outside. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned the word friability. We just spent a week on social media talking about that word. It's one of Jace's favorites. Um, can you define it a little bit and then explain what it means in the context of blasting? Sure.
1: So, uh, I mean, to me, friability is how brittle a media is or, or how, how it's tend or what its tendency is to break down upon impact. So An abrasive that is more friable will break down or fracture as as it's used. The ones that are less friable, we we can actually reclaim those and reuse them multiple times. And uh, one other benefit, or one other factor in there, is a more friable abrasive will generate more dust in the blast process itself because it's that media itself is going to burst or fracture. So you're going to have dust from the surface of the substrate that the abrasive as it cleans is removing material from the surface creating dust and then that that abrasive itself as it fractures will create more dust as well.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I'm happy to report that it's in line with everything that we were sharing with our followers. So that's always good too. (laughs) Um, so Ka uses crushed glass, aluminum oxide, and steel grit. Um, and I know that there's you know hundreds of blast media options out there. Are there any in your opinion that are overlooked or underused um, or could be better utilized? Um,
1: I mean, that's, that's, that's a good question. You know, there, there are countless, uh, abrasive options out there on the market. It seems like we're, we're learning about new ones or different ones all the time. Um, and you also learn about customers that are taking maybe multiple abrasives and blending them together in a pot to get sort of the features and benefits of, of each one to create a, a finish or a profile that they're looking for. Um, to pick one that I would say is is, is overlooked or underused. Um you know, I, I've been playing around a lot lately with uh, plastic media. Uh and it is just oh. it's it's different types of plastics, there's different hardnesses, but it's basically like a recycled byproduct and it's chopped plastic. It's I always tell customers that it looks like fruity pebbles, it's multiple colors of little pieces of plastic that have been cut and uh you hold it in your hand. It's really light. Um, you wouldn't think that it would have much power behind it, but it is a tremendous product for stripping off powder coat.
0: So interesting.
1: Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a neat tool that I think a lot of customers probably haven't used it before or haven't had the chance to experience it. And, uh, it, I, I've learned a lot using it a lot, a lot testing it lately. And, uh, it, it doesn't uh, leave a, a profile or an anchor on the surface, but it, it it certainly will cut very quickly.
2: That's interesting because we, from time to time, we have to blast off our own powder if something goes wrong or if we have even if it's old railing that's um, faded and rusty in spots but it was powder coated originally usually takes way longer to blast so just kind of relating that to our system would that be something that's that plastic is reclaimable or we would kind of use that as we do crushed glass and kind of put it in its own pot and once you use it once it's done
1: no, it, it is certainly a brace of Jace that you'd want to get multiple passes out of it. Um, you know, you're, a lot of time with plastic, you're blasting in that maybe 40 to 60 PSI range. I mean, depending on the application, you might see some variability from there, but it's something that, um, you know, you, you could get, we, we like to say probably 8 to 10 passes out of. Um, okay. And at the at the cost, it would it'd be something you'd certainly want to get those 8 to 10 passes to really realize the benefit of
2: So is that like an angular media where it's, you know, actually removing material away? I mean, I would assume there's got to be part of that if it works good for taking off powder, but is it, or is it a mixture where there's some more rounded like peening that happens too?
1: Sure. No, no, that would certainly be the, the reason it cuts so fast is it is is an an angular abrasive. Um, it, It is fairly sharp. Um, we, we see it a lot in aerospace applications where customers are needing to strip off a heavy coating, but they're not able to change the dimensional tolerances of the substrate below. So they might be doing an aluminum or magnesium part and we're blasting it to remove that coating, but we can't remove any of the metal that's underneath. So I guess to answer your question, the shape of it is angular but it's not going to put a profile into the metal or substrate. So a lot of times, guys, if they're going to quickly remove a powder coat off of a surface using plastic, um, you might see that person use a different abrasive after that to create that anchor profile on the metal to give themselves a good adhesion point.
2: Okay, so basically... (sighs) Uh, and this is the first I've learned of the plastic so this is breaking news to me on KaserCast but is it <laughs> essentially it's uh, so your plastic would be less more friable than the substrate because it's not actually putting a profile on the steel substrate, let's say, for example. But it's similar friability um, or a little less friable than like the coating that you're trying to take off. So essentially, it's going to remove the coating, not hurt the substrate underneath. So for like direct application to Kaser besides powder, you know that we use a lot of crushed glass, Mm -hmm. Greg, when we are blasting cars and things like that. Um, So would that be a good... Another option that we could try is plastic instead of crushed glass.
1: Well, it it, it certainly could. And and I guess let me step back a little bit, too, is, is a lot of times when guys are using plastic and they want to achieve an anchor profile, sometimes they'll blend in another abrasive. They might use some fine aluminum oxide to go with it. Okay, so you kind of get the cutting benefits of the of the plastic and then you get sort of the anchor profile and the additional benefit of the aluminum oxide. But, you know, on on the car bodies and things like that, I do see a lot of uh, restoration shops using plastic. Um, and A lot of times that's on maybe high end fiberglass bodies and things like that.